It's time for BMAC and Herd's FCS Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Here's Brian McLaughlin and Sam Herder. Hey folks, we hope you're ready for another episode of BMAC and Herd's FCS podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I'm Brian McLaughlin. I'm the FCS National Coordinator and bleary-eyed recruiting uh, freak show artist of uh, the FCS. And Sam Herder is the sane side of this equation. He's the senior FCS analyst. Sam, how you doing? And... Uh, what do we want to talk about today, buddy? I think I have a pretty good idea, but what do you think? Yeah, we have a, a lot of stuff to get to today on on this podcast. And, of course, we'll, most of it will probably be about uh, the recruiting rankings that you came, that you, uh, came out with the, yesterday, uh, the mm-hmm. top 50 recruiting classes team-wise and also the top 300 individual recruits. We'll, we'll touch on that. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly glad that, that you are our recruiting guy uh, for <laughs> two reasons. One is just the, the amount of, of feedback that you get and, and have to deal with as far as, uh, you know, making sure you say thank you to the positive comments and also make sure you, you know, defend, uh, you know, any accusations or, or any any anyone that disagrees with your rankings uh, you know I've seen that you usually do a pretty good job of of responding to them and, and explaining you know how things work and I think that's always important to do and I think that's something we do a lot of is if, if there's ever a misunderstanding or something or someone disagrees with some of our stuff uh, we always make sure we respond to them uh, and make sure they you know get all their all their facts right so that's one reason but the other reason too is you're you're a, a much more optimistic person than I am Brian and so <laughs> whenever I see recruiting rankings uh, obviously you know covering college football I understand how big recruiting is it's the lifeblood of, of college football and um, any program really at the college level and you know I understand why there's so much fan interest uh, as well but at the same time you know I kind of just I, I'm the kind of the the realist or the the, the pessimistic guy <laughs> behind the keyboard on signing day where I kind of poke fun of, of how every single class is filled with difference makers and a bunch of wins coming up and I, I just wish one year there was one coach that said you know we're excited about the guys that we have coming on campus but I'll be honest with you a majority of the guys that were on a recruiting board are number one and number two guys we did not get, so we need to do a better job of recruiting. I, I wish one year one coach would say that instead of you know <laughs> saying every recruiting class is is. Well, you got to fire up the fans, I know, I know. That's that that that's what I'm saying. That's what that's why you're our recruiting guy, um, and not me. So we'll dive into that, all the recruiting stuff, and Brian's reaction to, um, you know, what do you what he saw from the team rankings and the individual rankings. We'll also touch on North Carolina A and T going to the Big South Conference, and we'll finish up the podcast briefly talking about the 12 players that got invited to the NFL Combine, and Brian will also kind of uh, explain what the process is like as far as how players are selected and invited to the, to the NFL Combine. 
Before we get to all those topics, I want to remind you guys that you can find these episodes on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, and Spreaker. We would love for you guys to subscribe to the, podca- to the podcast, give us a review and a rating, and, and all that good stuff. So, Brian, let's, I mean, I guess we can dive into the team rankings, and you know, you rank the top 50 teams, people can see the, the full rankings on Herosports.com, but real quick, the top 10 Goes and this does not include the Ivy League, uh, the Ivy League teams no. either. Uh, and you can touch on on why I that will. is. But yeah. uh, number one through ten is James Madison, Furman, Delaware, North Dakota State. Stephen F. Austin is number five. And then six through ten is Villanova, South Dakota, Illinois State, Kennesaw State, and Florida A and M is number ten. So, I mean, Brian, where do, I mean, I'll just I'll just let you take it from here on however you want to go with uh, these recruiting rankings that you came out with. Yeah, you know, so we have a we have a system for this, and it's you know just like we put in the stories, it's uh, it's scholarship offer based. It's the best quantifiable method I could come up with that I thought expresses you know how much a kid is you know coveted by other schools, and then as a collective, you know, when you get the whole class together, add it up, you know, numerically, et cetera, et cetera, and and. That's what came up with the list. And so, you know, when I was uh, – I vetted as much as I could after signing day. And, you know, I put it all out there and I started to add it up. And, and it's kind of amazing how the order – sometimes it, it, a lot of times it feels like it goes hand-in-hand hand almost with, like, some of the stronger programs and the playoffs. But you always have, like, a couple interesting teams that pop up, you know, that come into it. And like you, you read off our list. I mean, I don't think it shocks anybody to see James Madison in that mix. North Dakota State. You know, it was interesting. I did a preliminary um, uh, Missouri Valley ranking about a week or two before National Signing Day, and South Dakota actually numerically came out ahead of North Dakota State. Then South Dakota lost like three kids in the last two weeks, and North Dakota State got two massive pickups. One of them is from down here in Clearwater, Florida. And it it actually changed the order a little bit, and NDSU went a little bit ahead of South Dakota. But regardless, how about South Dakota with their class, you know, coming in in the top ten? How about Stephen F. Austin again making a splash? You know, Colby Carthel, is, ever since he came over from Texas A&M Commerce, he's, you know, really turned this program into a recruiting monster, which I do think will translate – you know, in within the next couple of years, into something really special. Once the, the basically the program is kind of washing itself, you know, which we see in college football all the time. So, a um, lot of a lot of familiar names. Um, I thought, you know, it's not surprising that Furman is in the top ten. I think, but it was surprising to me how close Furman came to getting into that number one spot. They Furman has an excellent class this year. I mean, really, really special. Um, Delaware and Villanova. These are two CAA teams that I think we're going to see big things, you know, from us in the next couple of years. I really think they're going to get closer and closer to pushing James Madison. Uh, they're doing a great job on the recruiting trail. Illinois State's no big surprise. Hey, Kennesaw State being a top 10, you know, they started off their program five years ago. They had that really good senior class two years ago. They had a little bit of a rebuild last year and still won some playoff games. But the truth is, Kennesaw State's going to be a good program every year. 
And no, North Dakota State fans, they may not be able to come up to Fargo all the time and beat you guys, but Kennesaw State is going to be a top 10 type program in general pretty much every year, I think. And they do a great job recruiting a very talent-rich area. Um, Florida A&M, man, what can I say about Willie Simmons? I mean, the guy's just good at this. And I think FAMU... Even going through the probation, the self-imposed probation uh, and uh, sanctions is going to be a monster down the line in the HBC ranks. I just really, really think that uh, they're doing the right things at that program and they're getting talent that, uh, you know, maybe waited a little too long on, on their Power 5 offers. Maybe there's a little academic thing here and there, whatever. For whatever reason, they're getting some serious talent down here in Florida. And... uh I would argue they haven't been this good, this potentially good since maybe the late 70s when they won the first 1AA title. I mean, it might get to that level. So that was, you know, I, I think it's a lot of fun to see where it all kind of falls into place. And, Sam, you touched on, okay, up until this year, I had always included the Ivy League teams in this team ranking. Mm-hmm. I still included them in uh, the individual top 300, but I did not include them in this year's team rankings, and I'll tell you why. Um, The Ivy Leagues are non-scholarship programs, as we all know. Um, They have about four of their programs are monsters on the recruiting, you know, on the recruiting trail, and they can take 40 kids. They can take 50 kids. I mean, when you're not on scholarship, you can recruit, you know, whoever to come and try to make the team. Uh, maybe give them a little bit of academic help or whatever the situation is. But, you know, I was looking at Princeton's class, which if Princeton had been in this, Princeton would have run away with this team title again by a mile. But the problem is you begin to look at it, you go, yeah, well, we're really comparing apples and oranges because – you know, the, most FCS schools have 62, what is it, 62 or 63 scholarships, which is basically averages out to you're adding 15 to 18 guys a year, depending on attrition. And, of course, they'll take some walk-ons too, but those are preferred walk-ons. That doesn't really count against scholarship numbers. And generally, walk-ons don't have offers. Well, Princeton had 22 guys that would have been in my top 700. 22 guys. Well, most of the FCS scholarship programs don't even have 22 recruits, period. And I'm going to compare a team that can bring in 35 to 40 guys to a, a team that can't bring in more than 18. It just doesn't add up under the metrics. And this is something I'm going to have to look at. But So we're going to rank the Ivy Leagues against the Ivy League teams. And uh, I'm going to do that this week, too. Um, and Princeton will win it. It's, it. Princeton's class is just insane. Again, uh, they get really highly coveted players. So, um, I don't know, man. Sam, you know, I, I like what you said about – because I want to, you know, I want to preface this with when I first got into journalism, I couldn't stand recruiting either, but I kind of fell in love <laughs> with it. Um, I, he- I hear what you're saying. I'll tell you what got interesting was just – um, you begin to understand that this is the lifeblood of a program. And, uh, you know, along the lines of what she said, and I think I may have said this last year on our podcast, but 
the first signing day I ever covered at the University of Florida, Steve Spurrier walked to the podium, and uh, he he had just been working out, so he had a towel around his neck, even with all the cameras on him, and he goes, well, we had another signing day, you know, and uh, we signed about 25 kids, and we're not going to have to cancel football in three years. Now, here's Jimmy Collins, our recruiting coordinator, to talk more <laughs> about it, and that's how Spurrier was about recruiting. Because he he looked at it just like you, Sam. He's like, all right, we signed some kids. We're a destination program. I'm not going to beg them to come here. This is a special place. We offered you. You come here. You prove yourself to us. That that was the way he looked at recruiting. A lot of coaches look at it the other way, you know, in other ways. But he just wasn't going to spend a lot of time talking about it. He just did, I don't even think he cared a whole lot about recruiting back in those days. He was kind of that arrogant. Um but that's how he handled signing day. I mean, he wouldn't talk for more than two minutes about it. So, you know, but things have changed. The digital age have made this bigger. <laughs> and, um, you know, but what, what you, I mean, anything, Did you, were you surprised by anything? I mean, what did you, you think? Uh, I mean, there are certainly some surprises uh, in there. I mean, I guess... I knew South Dakota uh, has potential to land some big-time recruits just because they do offer cost of attendance. They have some new facilities uh, going up. So I guess that was one surprise for me uh, in, in the top ten. Uh, you know, t- for me, I, I guess I, I kind of want to repeat, you know, what I what I said on our last podcast, and that's just, you know, fans need to have some perspective uh, with recruiting rankings and you know it's it's almost so obvious i don't want to say it but i'm going to anyways just because team a has a much better recruiting class on paper than team b doesn't mean they're going to be the better football team you know in 3 or 4 years just yeah, just like yeah, if, it just because you yeah. know just like if, if guy a is drafted in the first round that doesn't mean he's going to be a better nfl player than the guy drafted in the third round i mean that's just kind of how how sports work and you know some there are some programs that you know f- for instance for me you know, and you know, I I can kind of reference this because I had talked to Dan Jackson, South Dakota State's recruiting coordinator, about about this. But I mean, four or five years ago, if you were to looked at South Dakota State's recruiting class, didn't really jump off the page. I mean, they, they liked the guys that they had coming in, obviously, but you know, from a, a recruiting ranking standpoint, it wasn't like holy crap, look what the Jackrabbits are doing in recruiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but they were able to identify talent. You know, saw something in, in, in some recruits that maybe other teams didn't, and they developed the hell out of them. And you yeah, know, maybe they had. I mean, I don't. We didn't do recruiting rankings back in 2015. I, I no. don't believe, but I, they. I don't know. Maybe they would have been in the top. 40 but not the top 25 or whatever but again they developed them and all those guys by the time they were juniors and seniors were playing in the FCS semifinals I mean you can you can go back and look at a few years ago of some of the top teams in the recruiting rankings and you look at what they did this year and they were just you know an okay team or a 500 team and that's because you know some of the recruits uh, didn't develop or they left the team for whatever reason or I mean because you just never know how these high school 17 and 18 year old guys are, are going to adapt to the college level and you know to take take an example of from this year I mean Montana the Grizz aren't even in the top 50 but yeah. I'm willing to bet probably my mortgage that in three to four years Montana's probably going to be ranked somewhere in the top 50 oh yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I mean absolutely. top 25 top top 10 top five even and you know the one thing we know about Bob, Bobby Hulk for sure is he gets you know every ounce of talent and every ounce of effort out of his players and he develops the hell out of them once again so 
just because Montana doesn't have those two, three-star guys or, you know, the Grizz don't have the guys that jump off the page. And some of that has to do with the fact that they recruit a lot of guys in-state and those guys don't have a a lot of offers, you know, all of that. But my, my point is... I would rather have I would rather be a fan of a team that has a pretty good recruiting class but you know the the proof is there that they recruit or that they develop their guys really well over a, a, a team that year after year they're bringing in eye-opening talent but for whatever reason it's just not working out you know on the field once these recruits you know start hitting their third or fourth year in the program so it, you know Brian you know I I know you've said that this these recruiting rankings aren't projections, kind of like no, I said, they're not. not projecting that you yeah. know, this is going to be the best team in, in three or four years. Uh, it's just a, a fact of uh, looking at which recruits were the most sought after, uh, just to give some people, you know, some fans an idea of, of what's to come and you know some players to keep an eye on and what some and what teams are doing uh, in recruiting. And I think, you know, I guess. You, I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the the main reason we do recruiting rankings is no, it's not the clicks or the page views or anything like that, but it's to give these FCS players to, to make it feel like it's a big deal that they're committing to an FCS school. Because in it the is. past, in, yeah. in the past, they would you know commit and sign with you know a, whatever Central Arkansas, and not a lot of people would talk about it. But now all of a sudden, they they. Uh, they sign on, uh, you know, they commit, and then they sign on, and we're making a big deal out of it. We're making a big big deal out of them and their recruiting class and all that, and it kind of it makes them feel like they're about to be part of something special. It makes them feel that the FCS level, you know, isn't the, the option to behind the FBS, that they're they're coming to a pretty good subdivision here. Yeah, that's, that's definitely part of it, um, and that also, um, you know, recruiting is half – of this coaching staff's job. And mm-hmm. we talk a lot about what's going on on the field, but this they win the competition in this too. And let me tell you something about young assistant coaches. All right, these guys are just, you know, three, four years removed from, you know, knocking skulls out on the gridiron. And they haven't gotten that completely out of their system, okay? <laughs> so what, you know, where? how can they go, you know, kick the asses of the of the rival school across the way you know well recruiting is one way you can do it and it's Mm -hmm. a sales job um you know but i can guarantee i don't care what any coach says uh when the cameras are on and i I put this on a facebook thread that was questioning this coaches high five and dance when they get a recruit and and sometimes you see that on like espn when a uh clemson gets a guy they want they want to show the enthusiasm and uh, behind closed doors, you know, that sort of thing that a kid picked their school. Um, but they, that's not just manufactured to make the kid feel good when he calls the coaches. That They actually are excited that they got that off-season victory because recruiting is 365, man. 365, yeah. 24-7. And, it never ends. And the, you know? the ability to recruit is so important for college coaches because, yep. I mean, you can – know all the X's and O's and, you know, know all, all the right drills and all the right play calls or, you know, whatever you whatever you want to talk about there. But, you know, if you can't recruit, you know, you're not going to last very long at the, at the college level. And, you know, right. I guess you can always be a, an offensive analyst where your, your only job is to kind of break down film and all that. I guess I'm not sure if offensive and defensive analysts do any recruiting at all. But you see all the time where, you know, an assistant coach – goes from one place 
and, and then he gets a new job coaching the defensive line, and you know some of the fans will go, well, this coach didn't even play defensive line in college and you know he was coaching dbs at his last stop you know why is he coming here then he he gets introduced at the press conference or whatever and the head coach says you know this guy is a heck of a recruiter and you know is the area and he can bring in some big time talents so it's kind of one of those things where i mean you can you know every coach at the college level can coach and do the x's and o's and all that but i think the ability to recruit the ability to go into living rooms and talk to mom and dads and you know get these 16, 17, 18-year-old kids, you know, interested in your school, that's that's such a gift and, you know, an important trait uh, to have if you're a college coach because just like you said, Brian, it is 365 and, you know, I, I can't remember who the who – who would the tweet or who tweeted it? But you know, there was a day after signing day, and it was all right. Class of twenty twenty one, you're mm-hmm. on the clock. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. already targeting guys for for next year. They're already offering guys. Oh they're, right, they're yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah, they're not just evaluating. And and you know, when you get into the FBS ranks, they're evaluating guys as sophomores. Oh yeah, the really elite kids. You know, who are already six five two thirty and running four sixes. The, if they're doing that as sophomores, Alabama's offering them back, you know, verbally offering them in, in their sophomore year. Um, you know, most of the kids that we cover in recruiting, they the, – the offers start – it depends on the program, but the offers really do start in the spring of their junior years, and it will continue through the summer, and then the commitments will start to roll in in the summer. Uh, and they kind of trickle at a pretty even pace until November, and then it gets crazy. But um, but that's kind of how it works. Um you touched on Montana, and I do want to talk about this on the record uh, so that we can tease to it, you know, so if people want to understand further how this, you know, all works. Uh, Montana, yeah, they have a great class. They stayed in-house, and when I say in-house, I mean in-state. They stayed in-state for, you know, a good chunk of the kids. They did go into California some, um, and when when you go into the talent hotbeds, that's when you're going to be getting those coveted guys that have some offers. And that, that was definitely the case with their best recruit, who is a Peyton Brammer out of Washington State. I mean, he, you know, he had a bunch of FCS options. He had the Air Force Academy as an option. and um, But, you know, when you stack Montana up against Montana State, it's just two different philosophies. Um, Montana State goes out of state a lot. Like, they had – Montana State – ended up with uh, 10 guys in the top 700. And I use that as part of the gauge, by the way. I don't print or publish all the 700 of them, but I use that as a gauge to set up my team rankings. And Montana State, you know, all 10 of their guys who were in the top 700 were from out of state. And you have to go all the way down to, like, their 12th or 13th highest-rated recruit before you get an in-state guy. And this is the question – the Montana fans always bring up is like why why don't you recognize our in-state guys? And I'm like, well, I realize that in-state guys can be, become all Americans. I mean, we see it all the time with the Dakota schools and the Montana schools. You know, it's sparsely populated, but in-state guys rise to prominence. But the truth is, if you don't go out of state and and get kids from California, Arizona, Texas, Florida. Washington State and Oregon, you know, whatever, even Utah, whatever. If you don't do that in Montana, you're not going to win. You know, it's not going to (laughs) happen. You can't build an elite-level FCS program with just only in-state talent in the Dakotas 
or in Montana, and I'll extend it even to like a West Virginia. If you ever look at their roster, there aren't too many kids on the West Virginia roster that come from the state of West Virginia. Maybe 10. I mean, I'll look at it sometime. 10 that are actually on scholarship. Most of them, they, they go to Florida, they go to Ohio. They have to go out of state, Pennsylvania, to build their program. Nebraska's the same thing. Nebraska's so much like North Dakota State, for instance, from the standpoint of, yeah, if I'm getting my offensive linemen, I want them to be Nebraska kids or Dakota kids. But when it comes to getting those, those skill kids, you're going to have to go to Chicago, St. Louis, uh, Florida, Georgia, Atlanta, you know, you know what I'm saying, Louisiana, whatever. And that's how you build a program. And so this this metric we use to come up with these rankings, they're not perfect, but I do think they're indications of, you know, wh- where a team is going to get its talent and who they are beating out within maybe the Big Sky Conference, for instance, for a kid, you know, that maybe Eastern Washington wanted in Washington State or Portland State wanted in Oregon or one of the, you know, UC Davis wanted in California. Northern Arizona wanted in Phoenix, you know. Um, and the truth is, when I'm looking at this list, uh, Montana State went into those places and got kids that definitely had a lot of uh, options. Uh, Montana went in, went out of state some, and they got a, a couple guys that had options. I mean, but just not as much as like MSU did or some of the other schools. And people, okay, it's not anything deeper than that quantifiable metric that we're talking about, which is scholarship offers. Uh, I have a tiered system. If you get a P5 offer, and a lot of times they are actually verbal offers, but I still think when a P5 offers you, it's a big deal. Uh, verbal or not, or written, either way, it's a big deal. Uh, FBS, like group of five offers, those I have sign a point total to that. FCS, you got you got eight FCS offers. That's going to help your ranking, and that's all it is. There is no I love this school or I hate this school. There's nothing to it. it that's the criteria. And the funny thing is, you know, again, look at the Dakota schools. North Dakota State does a great job in state. There's no question, especially with the guys up front. But they still have a very elite class by going out of state and getting talent from out of state, too. You know, they might get that badass linebacker out of East St. Louis, you know. Um, you know, so that's anyways, it's a long-winded, you know, explanation of how we do it. Um, there's some interesting little quirky things about it. I would say Montana is one of those. The Ivy Leagues with their situations, one of those. But that's how we came to these conclusions. And to, to wrap it up, yeah, it's it, what we're trying to do is recognize excellence, uh, the jobs that these coaches are doing. It's hard work. You have to leave your family. You know, you just got done with the season and you're you're jumping on a plane and flying all over the place trying to land, you know, the next stud. Uh, and that's the job of assistant coaches and head coaches too. You know, you go to your hotbeds and, um, I mean, anecdotally, you know, Dan Hunt up at Colgate always does a great job in South Florida. Uh, he spends a lot of time down in Miami and it isn't sipping Mai Tais. I mean, he, <laughs> he goes down there and gets some – really good talent and that helps build his program he has connections down there to some really good academic schools 
And, you know, that's his, that's his go-to place. But, you know, it's time away from family. It's exhausting. And, you know, they all do a great job of it. But, you know, these are some of the programs that, that kind of stuck out a little bit. So, uh, but I think that kind of tells you what's up with the, with the FCS recruiting ranking. I think it is worth noting Stephen F. Austin for the second year in a row. Yeah. Brings home the number one individual player, and I mean, it wasn't even close by our criteria. Uh, Bernard Wright, last year it was Carl Williams, who Carl played a good bit for them last year until I think he got injured late uh, as a true freshman. Both are defensive linemen that were coveted by P5 schools. That's It's hard to get elite defensive line talent, you know, in to, to snag kids that originally, you know, the SEC wanted, that's scary. If those guys stick to it, they could be draft picks coming out of SFA. He had 25 Power 5 verbal offers a year ago. I mean, think about that. And that's kind of where Carl was last year, too. And these guys did come in in the 11th hour. That's the way it always works when you get a kid of that level. Um, but he is easily the number one guy. So for the second straight year, Stephen F. Austin's getting it done. So, um, uh, so Sam, we had some other things we wanted to knock around. What's, uh, what, what's next on the agenda? What, uh, I think we got some good news nuggets to, uh, discuss. Yeah. Uh, first off the, the news that came out last week is North Carolina A&T is heading to the big South and you know just some some details on that that'll you know come in they'll still be a MEAC team uh this upcoming season in 2020 but uh entering 2020 2021 uh they'll be a full member of the Big South i think it's 16 of 17 or 15 of 16 sports will be a member of the Big South including football and you know the Aggies will be eligible immediately for conference championships and i mean this is a just a, a massive move on so many levels you know just the fact that the the Aggies were the class of of the MEAC and the HBCUs they've you know since the celebration bowl uh came about they've they've won four of the five they've won the last three and you know it's always kind of been one of the top discussion topics on social media is okay how good is this North Carolina A&T team especially these these last few these last few teams, you know, are they top five, top 10, top 15 FCS team? And, you know, we don't really know. Uh, we never really knew. I mean, yes, the, the Aggies beat, I think, I believe it was Elon uh, this last year. Mm-hmm. And Elon That's was ranked at the time, but, you know, that Elon ended up not making the playoffs. So we weren't exactly sure how good the Aggies were. They, they've beaten. Uh, in 2016, 2017, and 2018, uh, they've beaten FBS opponents. Uh, but again, like we don't know how that stacks up, you know, at the national level of of the FCS, and that's always kind of been a topic of discussion. And now, you know, the, the Aggies are heading to the Big South, which has an automatic qualifier, an auto bid into the FCS playoffs, and also this last year got in that large bid, so it was a two bid league into the FCS playoffs this this last year. So, I mean, for me, my my main takeaways was kind of threefold. You know, one, just a a, a shot to the gut for the MEAC. Uh, I mean, this NCANT was a founding member. Uh, they're, I think it's they're closing in on 50 years in the conference, and you know, it's it, it's a really tough move 
uh, for the MEAC to have a, a program like NCA&T move out of your conference. Uh, but then on the flip side, I mean, the Big South had a lot, had a, a, a few teams uh, – transition out into the FBS and for a, a number of years the Big South was was really one of the weaker leagues in the FCS and their numbers were struggling and they've since added you know a, a couple of teams like Campbell uh, North Alabama Kennesaw yeah. State obviously uh, a handful of years ago and for now for the Big South to add A&T really really strengthens the conference and lastly I think it strengthens it strengthens the FCS playoffs I think to have a, a program with a passionate following like North Carolina A&T has uh, just their their track record uh, the amount of wins they've had uh, in these last you know however many years five years the celebration bowl wins the HBCU national championships the FBS wins I mean this is a, a premier program in my opinion in the FCS and now we'll get to see Okay, are they a, a second-round team? Are they a quarterfinal team? Could they make some noise into the semifinals? And starting in 2021, uh, we'll get some answers to those questions. Yeah, this is a oh, this is big news. Yeah, you're right about the MEAC. You know, they've lost Hampton to the Big South. Um, it does make you wonder: Will others eyeball this? And I know North Carolina A and T. You know, just talking to them when I went to the preseason classic two years ago uh in montgomery talking to ncant fans it was interesting how curious they are about having a full because if you remember back i, I want to say in 2016 they did get into the fcs playoffs as a runner-up in the MEAC to north carolina central and they went up to richmond when kyle Aletta was there and they got throttled but they had in, a major injuries at the end of that year and that that's why NC Central knocked them out of the, the Celebration Bowl that year anyways. So they, they're curious to see where their program can stack up in the playoffs because, as you mentioned, they've beaten FBS teams. They beat East Carolina, for goodness sakes. I mean, uh, they've beaten Jacksonville State, which is a perennial power in the FCS level um, over the last five to ten years, you know. Uh, like you said, they can play with CAA teams, that's that sort of thing, when they're healthy. And, you know, I think they're curious. I think they want to be challenged and uh, see where they stack up. And I think when NCA and T's, a, you know, a, a, you know, when they are cycling in a, in a good part of their cycle, I guess you would say, I think they're a quarter finalist at least, you know, and that's that's good. That's really good. So, uh, the Big South is the kind of conference where there's an opportunity there. I think Kennesaw is always going to be a problem. I think Charleston Southern is going to be a problem. They're doing big things under Autry Denson. Um, North Alabama is going to be a monster. So it's going to be it, a big. The Big South is not going to be the Big South we had two or three years ago. Soon. I mean, it's it's going to get deeper and better, and North Carolina A&T coming to it makes it even better. Uh, but it certainly makes the MEAC weaker. I I wonder, like, how Florida A&M looks at this move. Mm -hmm. You know, might they get interested? But at this point, there's really no question the SWAC is way healthier than the MEAC at this point. I mean, uh, even though NCA&T has been winning the Celebration Bowls, when it comes to depth within the conference – it's the swack is better, you know. Uh, it's just they haven't had the team knocking off uh, the Aggies in the Celebration Bowl. So uh, that was big news, man. And uh, I think 
I think we've kind of known something like this could happen, but um, but they pulled the trigger, man, and uh, it, it's going to make things way more interesting next year, both in the Celebration Bowl situation and also in the Big South Championship uh, run because NCA and T you can play some ball. So, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. I think yeah, I mean it's especially you mentioned it and I mentioned it. The Big South uh, a, a couple of years ago was was really hurting and you know not the not anywhere close to being the the strongest FCS conference. But I think with their performance in the in this last year's FCS playoffs, you know going two and zero in the in the first round. And obviously, you know, Monmouth kind of got it handed to them by James Madison, which was probably expected. But, I mean, Kennesaw State, I think, earned a lot of respect just with the way they, they went to Weber State and, you know, gave them yeah. all they could handle and ne- nearly knocked them off. I think it was – I mean, I know Kennesaw State was winning at halftime and it ended up being, a, I think it was a 26-20 Weber State win. And, you know, the Wildcats went on to make the semifinals. But I think the Big South earned – uh, some respect it, it, with how they played in this in this last year's FCS playoffs, and now with the addition of of North Carolina A and T in a couple of years, yeah, the the it's things are certainly looking up for that conference that had some uh, some down years uh, recently. Yes, sir. Well, I you know another big thing happened here in the last couple of days, and once again we find out that uh, the NFL Combine. Apparently is not all that curious about uh, about our FCS boys. <laughs> it's like, yeah, God, yeah, it's a, I mean, yeah. What, what was your first reaction to that? Well, it's a it's a low number. Certainly, uh, only twelve FCS players got an invite this year. That's down from fourteen that were invited last year. That's way down from the twenty that were invited in twenty eighteen, and then going mm-hmm. all the way back to twenty seventeen, nineteen FCS players were invited. So the the number is low. Um, so, I mean, I guess to, to go through quickly, the, the players that were uh, picked to go or were invited to go to the NFL Combine, Montana linebacker Dante Olson, Portland State tight end uh, Charlie Tomopeo. Uh, Rhode Island has three players uh, yep. going to the NFL Combine, which is you know, just amazing. Uh, wide receiver Isaiah Coulter, offensive lineman Kyle Murphy, and wide receiver Aaron Parker. Princeton, uh, Princeton's quarterback Kevin Davidson, South Carolina State's big offensive lineman Alex Taylor, uh, Southern Illinois safety Jeremy Chin, Illinois State running back James Robinson, NDSU defensive end Derek Tuska, Bucknell punter Alex Pechin, uh, and Dayton tight end Adam Troutman. So those are the those are the twelve the twelve guys that are going this year. And you know I, I will say that I put out an article uh, earlier this week talking about how. You know, just because you got an invite to the NFL Combine, that doesn't mean you have a golden ticket to to being drafted. And no. on the flip side, just because you weren't invited, you know, doesn't mean your chances of of being drafted, you know, go down quite a bit. And in the last uh, last six years, I believe, yeah, the last six years, thirty total FCS guys that weren't invited to the Combine end up being drafted. And I think a lot of that has to do with. Uh, a lot of guys are under the radar, and they they absolutely crushed their pro day. And you know maybe only five NFL scouts were there, and they kind of want to keep this guy a secret so no other teams come swooping in, and so they can That's you know correct. grab him in the sixth or seventh round. Uh, but I mean it it is a low number this year at the NFL Combine. Uh, but kind of like the the last six years, it, there's proof that you don't have to be invited to the NFL Combine to be a draft pick from the FCS. 
Yeah, and it, you know, a, a good friend of mine, Russ Landy, uh, worked with at the Sporting News. He he, uh, whenever I have a draft question or anything related uh, to that sort of thing, I I always ask him because he's very much an insider. He's been on the Big Ten Network. He's been a scout in the NFL. I think for the Browns and the Rams. I think he used to scout for Dick Vermeil, and uh, he's done CFL stuff, and just a great guy. He's a good friend of mine, and and I was after we had a low number last year. I I hit up Russ and I said, "All right, man, how how do they come up with this? You know, how do you have 350 guys going to the combine and only 12 are FCS guys when we we know we're going to have more than 12 FCS guys get drafted? I mean, you would think." You would think that the rule of thumb is, you know, maybe 30 guys get looked at, maybe 15 get drafted, but it's like, no, 12 guys from the FCS go and 18 get drafted. So you kind of like, it doesn't really add up. Um, and he said, well, it's it's a pretty simple system. Basically, the GMs, if a certain percentage, and I want to say he told me it was three quarters, I could be wrong, 80% of them, 75% of them, whatever. If about three quarters of them show interest in seeing a, a, a prospect up close uh, and in, you know, how he does in the quantifiables like the 40-yard dash and, you know, all that, and then also be able to meet with the kid, um, you know, have him take the the – the test, uh, the IQ Wonderlic. test, basically. Yeah, the Wonderlick. That that one's always interesting. Um, and, and just basically get to watch how he carries himself. Because all these same GMs and coaches, they were all at the Senior Bowl. They were all at the Shrine Bowl and the NFLPA. So they got to see. And, you know, when you add those three games up, that's, that's about 250 guys right there. And, um, you know, again, the combine will bring – I mean, it's not a set number. It could be 302. It could be 342. It just depends on what – so they apparently they go through the list and they check off who they are interested in seeing more in depth, get, uh, you know, official, a- accurate uh, measurements on, um, you know, basically to begin to pare down who they want to bring in for, you know, individual meetings in uh, in town – down the line, like in April, who they want to pay attention to closely during pro days, you know, that sort of thing. And, and it, that's the thing. It, it, it's not, they don't hate the FCS. It's just 12 guys is what got 75%. But I, I think it goes back to what you just said, Sam. Why would only 12 guys intrigue NFL GMs when the FCS has had as many as 20, 22 guys drafted recently? And I go with what you said it's i think they're keeping their clothes you know their cards close to the vest when it comes to the clemson guys and the you know the ohio state guys those guys have been on camera for four years maybe three years and everybody has seen them play everybody knows they're good and you're not gonna hide you can't you can't hide a clemson all-american but you know, there could be some hidden gem like uh, Chase Edmonds at Fordham or, you know, whatever that maybe they just haven't vetted. You know, most of the teams haven't vetted. And so, like you said, maybe only four teams really have their eye on this guy, but they feel like he's a perfect fit. Well, they don't want to expose him to the other, you know, 
30-plus teams or whatever, so they don't want to bring them to the combine and have them explode. And then you got to compete because because what I think GMs are hoping, and this is just and part of this is talking to Russ Landy about it, what I think GMs are hoping is that um, they can get a Chase Edmonds in the seventh round when they know he's really a fourth rounder, or maybe even they can get a Chase Edmonds as a you know a, a high end free agent pickup who ends up making the team and contributing, which makes you look like a genius because you identified that talent you were able to bring him in and the kid flourishes and now you have yourself a gamer, maybe even a starter, and you didn't even have to blow a draft pick on the guy. You know, that's what I think they're doing is they're hiding these guys. You know, my response to that is, well, you can hide them all you want, but when he goes to pro day and he does 42 reps on the bench of 225 pounds and he runs a, you know, a four five and he measures at, uh, you know, six four two thirty. You know, good luck hiding them because everybody by then is going to know about them, and they got they still have two months before the draft to evaluate the guy further. They could bring him in for meetings. They can, you know. So I don't know. I don't know that hiding guys from the combine, if that's what it is, is really all that effective. But what do I know? I'm not a GM, but uh, but I guess I think that's what's going on there. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, first reaction is always, you got to be kidding me. You only think 12 guys are worth looking at out of 350? Come on. I don't buy it. But, uh, but yeah, that's always a big announcement. And they they can, by the way, Sam, they, they can add a couple guys to the list, I want to say, within a week of when the announcement came out. So there could be – there might be a little bit of addition to it. But, we'll, but at the same time, my understanding is they could maybe not add anybody. So it's kind of like like the second round of it, and everybody may just shrug their shoulders and go, "No, nah, I'm good," and uh, keep it at that. So, uh, so that's what's going on with that. Yeah. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, that's a man. That's a whole lot of niche and a whole lot of nuance in uh, this podcast, buddy. When we get in, we're digging in the weeds with recruiting and NFL combine, and you know, I hope. Uh, I hope we didn't put anybody asleep at the wheel, but <laughs> there's a lot of technical aspects to all of this stuff. But I always like to look at recruiting in the NFL draft stuff as being like the bookends of FCS football, or, or the you know the 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 whole wheat bread with the, you know for the sandwich or whatever, because you're talking about the kids coming in, and you're talking about the guys who are heading out and have a chance to make you know, some money doing this. And the funny thing about it all is when they're coming in, the odds are stacked against them never getting a chance in the NFL. But we see it every year where, you know, hundreds of them get at least a shot in May. And then we see a hundred of them get to participate in August drills uh, you know, and, and try to make a, t- a roster and then get on the practice roster or whatever, and you might see 50 or 60 of them make, you know, NFL rosters in the fall. So there is a chance, recruits, that when you come to this level, that could be – you could we could be talking about you going to the NFL Combine. So Yeah, and uh, we, I mean, we always say – I mean, everyone says this uh, basically now. It's kind of turned into – 
people's go-to phrases in sports when it comes to uh, getting NFL or getting drafted into the NFL, and that's you know if if you're good enough, they'll find you. Uh, so I mean, if whether you're a P5, Group of Five, FCS, NAIA. Uh, you know, if you're good enough, you'll you'll land on an NFL squad one way or the other. Uh, you know, whether if you if you got invited to the combine or not, uh, you know, if you're good enough, uh, you'll certainly you'll certainly get a shot. You know, just be, the the whole process of how uh, NFL teams and their scouts and GMs and you know player personnel guys how they how they go about this whole process of you know figuring out you know their draft boards and who they're interested in as guys that can possibly land as undrafted free agents just the the whole process is so fascinating and we'll we'll probably dive into more of this as it nears but pro days are so incredibly important for they are for fcs guys and i mean like you said brian there's there's hundreds that get a shot at the nfl uh, most of those are uh, rookie minicamp invites, but there are a, a pretty decent amount that get undrafted free agent deals, and then there's you know, anywhere from the mid-teens to 20 that do get drafted, but for a majority of the guys, their pro day is their one shot to get in front of scouts and to impress, and then from there, you know, maybe get, you know, some phone interviews or maybe get, uh, you know, an invite out to, uh, to come, you know, talk to some scouts in person or do a, uh, an individual workout later where some scouts go to your college or wherever you're working out at to come see you work out in person and put you through their own drills um, and all that. But, uh, yeah, the pro days uh, are incredibly important for FCS guys. No doubt. I think I think way more important than any other level uh, other than the schools beneath uh, the FCS level. It's big, really big for those guys if they can mm-hmm. get to one. Uh, problem with, and this is why I still think the FCS is kind of the magical, perfect spot level. Uh, the D2 and D3 guys really don't get too many chances to get even into a pro day. And I want to say only, what, one or two got to the combine? So, you know, FCS schools, one thing I've noticed just speaking about pro days is, hey, they may not have gotten that many combine invites, but uh, I think think last year more than 85 FCS schools held pro days over the month of um, March and actually it, it it's really a four-week period that starts like literally two days after the combine so you know early early March and it extends to about April 5th and in that four four and a half week period you'll have 85 uh, pro days and they are run by pro scouts so these pro scouts are pretty busy. They're going from, you know, city to city to do these. Sometimes they'll do one at 10 a.m. Uh, and then go cross town to another FCS school and they'll do one at uh, 5 p.m. You know, so they get a lot of uh, a lot of exposure in front of scouts. And, you know, some of these pro days on FCS campuses only get eight scouts, six scouts. But some of them, depending on who's there, like Jeremy Chin at S- Southern Illinois, Guess what? Southern Illinois is probably going to have a pretty stacked pro day. You know, um, they'll probably have twenty plus teams, if not thirty. And and so sometimes too, if there is a uh, a really uh, you know high end pro prospect at the FCS level that is you know uh, performed really well at the, at the combine and basically is a lock to 
to be drafted and you know they, they really have nothing to gain by going to their pro day well sometimes some of these FCS guys will you know maybe do one drill at their pro day just so they attract all of the all of the scouts to come Correct. there as kind of a you know a rub to their teammates uh, so they can get in front of uh, a lot of scouts so I think you see that as well with some FCS guys uh, that maybe don't have to perform at their pro day but they do it anyways just to get as many eyes and, and scouts and clipboards and whistles in there as possible. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, it's funny at this level, like I, I can tell you, Kyle Laletta, by the time they got to Richmond's Pro Day, I mean, Kyle Laletta had been the Senior Bowl MVP. He had done extremely well at the Combine, proving that not only was he an amazing quarterback, he was a very good athlete. He had done really well in the testing, the interviews, the whole bit. And when it came to Richmond's Pro Day, he didn't need Richmond's Pro Day. He did not do the measurables. He didn't need to, really. Quarterbacks generally, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a dual-threat quarterback, your 40-yard dash time matters. It doesn't really matter if you're a pro style. Um, so all he did was throw that day, but he didn't really have to do that. But he's a really unselfish guy, and, and there were guys on Richmond's roster that were probably fringe free agent level guys who got to go out there. And I, I can't remember which one of them. I think it was his tight end, like, blew up because Kyle was there and he had 32 teams on hand watching him throw. So, yeah, that's that's big. And one little other nugget about pro days, when you – if sometimes when you do really well, like I'll give another anecdote, Kyle Sloter, who signed initially with the Denver Broncos, as like, he just barely did not get drafted. He was – he could have very easily been in the seventh round by the Broncos. John Elway loved him. He went into camp, didn't didn't make the team. The Minnesota Vikings picked him up. He was their third-string quarterback for a while. You know, okay, he's not an all-pro quarterback, but he's turned into an NFL roster quarterback. He made teams, you know, and he did – nobody even knew who he was, but he had a good senior year at Northern Colorado. They had a, a small pro day on campus. And then all the scouts, not that many scouts, came to that pro day, but they were really impressed. So what did they do? They, I think they asked either Colorado State or Colorado to let Kyle come to a second pro day, which is completely allowed. I mean, you're, you're allowed to go to the pro day on your campus, or if your campus isn't holding it or there's a reason you can't do that one, you can do, I think the rule is within 50 miles of your hometown. So, like, if Kyle, I think Kyle was from Texas or Louisiana, he could have gone down and maybe done Louisiana Tech's, uh, if Louisiana Tech will have him. Or he can do one within 50 miles of his college. So he might he might have been able to go, uh, you know, do one at, at uh, Colorado State if he had been invited. But, um, you know, so he did another one at, uh, you know, what, CSU, and blew up. And, you know, so it's it's kind of an inexact science, but it's it's interesting how it all works. Uh, but the FCS guys that really blow up, usually blow up because of Pro Day. So we've got some big stuff coming up, you know, now that we're plowing toward uh, midway through February. Uh, we're going to have the Combine at the end of the month, and then March is really where the FCS guys get their chances. So, but I think that's going to wrap things, Sam. What do you think? I think so. Yeah, I think we're good. I like this one, man. I, it's it's fun to talk about this stuff. I 
it's fascinating. So, um, and I know there's fans out there that think it's fascinating too. And we'll continue to talk about it in the spring because it's always fun to see these guys, you know, ascend to the NFL ranks. And also, I might add, the XFL, which kicked off this past weekend, uh, our Tampa Bay Vipers played. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of FCS guys playing in the XFL. So that's another shot to play. And I guess you could say Arena League, too. So, uh, But anyways, that'll wrap everything, folks. As usual, we thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, times 17, thank you for paying attention to what we're doing. And uh, we're, we're always looking toward building toward the 2020 season. So we'll be doing that as we go along um, while also paying attention to this NFL draft thing, which basically takes us to May 1st. And then we'll start talking about some previews and stuff like that. So uh, we got a lot on the plate this, this spring and, Looking forward to all of it and appreciate you all tuning in and we'll talk to you next time.